Today on the Leadership to Wealth podcast, I just need to let you guys know that uh, I'm really emotional because our guest today, a former Navy SEAL, we talk about moving from the battlefield to the boardroom and uh, being a CEO. He talks about losing loved ones um, that were close to him in the military, but then he gets even closer to home and talking about uh, lo losing fam a family member and what that means and being able to move through that. So I want to share with you guys our special guest today, Marty Strong. Welcome. This is the Leadership to Wealth podcast and our guest today, Marty Strong. Marty, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, th thanks for asking me to show up there, Neil. Well, I, I'm glad to have you on. Um, uh, we've we've had uh, some other interesting individuals, but I'm really curious to talk to you, Marty, because, uh, you know, I, I really want to know and I think we really want to find out how you go from bombs and bullets to a boardroom. And, uh, you know, that's been quite the journey for you going from the Navy SEALs to um, to uh, a business professional and um, you know, and really a CEO and doing so many things in in uh, the world of business. Can you talk a little bit, you know, from from a leadership standpoint of who you had to be or who you had to become to go from, you know, from bullets to boardroom? Sure. Sounds like a good name for a podcast, doesn't it? From bullets <laughs> to the boardroom. There um, you go. Just so give us I, a little bit of credit when you start that podcast. I will. I will. I, I will. I'll give you full credit for that. So, you know, when you start out in anything, you're an apprentice. I don't care what the profession is. And I started in the military as a 17-year-old, so I definitely didn't have any any great uh, aspirations or great capabilities that I brought to the table you know, to the United States Navy from day one. They basically start by training in, in technical skills so that you have some applicable value to whatever unit you're going to be attached to. And that's the same case in the SEAL team is when you go through basic SEAL training, you're basically being screened for character yeah. traits and attributes that later they will train. So right. they want a certain kind of person with a certain kind of positive, uh, flexible mindset, nimble, agile mindset, who's creative in their thinking, that is optimistic most of the time, even in the worst of times. Yeah. And that's what the whole basic course is all set up to do it's it's to screen out it's not about being physical everybody looks at it or sees it on tv or in a movie they say oh it's all about the best runner or the or the person who can do the most push-ups or uh toughest physically it's all about mental it's all about how the mm. brain's working how you're dealing with challenges and so the whole selection is throwing all kinds of crazy challenges at at these young guys to eventually end up with only 25 percent graduating each class did, did you know that at when you were uh, going in at 17, did you know that you wanted to be a Navy SEAL? No, okay. I, had no I had no idea. What, what was the impetus for, for enlisting in the first place? I was a, uh, a child of a, of a divorced family, a teenager living with my mom with a lot of mental issues. I, I kind of cover it in the beginning of the Be Nimble book so that people have a little bit of an idea of which is your book that oh, just came out in January, right? In January, right. Um, yeah. Have, so people have a little bit of an idea of how I, I guess, how I gained 
some psychological resilient resiliency because there's a couple of different ways you can go in those situations right you can go kind of mm. either depression and and go neutral in life or you can become um you can go down a path where you you vent and get in all kinds of trouble or you can decide this isn't going to beat me and you turn in you know the turn the rocky music on and go that direction so that's an important part of any any backstory and when i came into the navy it was to get away from uh my mom and that that family situation. Uh, there was nothing in Nebraska that really excited me, so I thought, all right, I'll join the Navy. My dad was in the Navy during the Korean War, and uh, I thought I was too small and and weak. Wait, no, Nebraska is known for its wrestling, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. I was not a wrestler. I was a swimmer, <laughs> and a football player, and a track guy. Um, but you know, I um, I joined the Navy, and yeah. Partly because I didn't think I could, I was tough enough to be a Marine. I liked the Marines as a concept better. And, and I came in and I had guaranteed uh, training in a technical skill, which was air traffic control and radar. Mm. Went through that course through a mistake of orders. I ended up being sent to SEAL training. So the, uh, the long and the short of that is I was a 17 and a half year old kid, 125 pounds. And they convinced me to to stay and try it because it's an all volunteer program. Yeah. And wow. six months, six months later, I was one of 13 original students out of the 126 that started. So I did wow. not have, a, I didn't have a big plan. I did not know what the seals were. I didn't aspire or strive to get into the program. And I was the worst runner in my class on day one. And I was the worst runner in my class and on graduation day. I mean, marginally close to being dropped all the time. So I never really felt that I was even going to make it to graduation until graduation. Right. So from that point forward, the SEALs groom you in technical skills that are, it's basic kind of commando work, but there's lots of technical things. There's, you get very, very advanced um, trauma care training. So you can, you can treat battlefield injuries like a medic would. You learn all about different kinds of communication systems and radios and optics and lots and lots of different technology. You learn how to, skydive you learn how to skydive in formation at night with night vision goggles on and form you know moving through this the sky covering 20 miles uh in the air like in a flying wing uh you learn all kinds of crazy crap and you do that for about a year after you get through the basic course mm -hmm. and then there's about another half a year of training as a team with a bunch of other seals and at that point you're kind of considered almost at the three-year mark you're considered you're actually a seal operator you, you're somebody that that they would put in harm's way and, and trust that they would actually execute. But you're, that's like day one. You're just, you're just being, you're just being a seal. You're just making the grade as far as your peers are concerned. Right. So that they don't give anybody in that whole process, a leadership position. Mm -hmm. So your leadership okay. training and your leadership responsibilities kind of evolve from that start point two and a half to three years in forward. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting is that uh, you said you you were going to become an air traffic controller and uh, be trained that way. And then they moved you into SEALs. I, I believe that uh, air traffic controller is rated uh, the most stressful job in the world um, <laughs> jobs out there. So it sounds like you uh, pun intended, dodged a bullet, um, on that one. So, yeah, I mean, also I, I've thought about in years later that maybe some of the attributes that made me, um, I did well in the course. So whatever, mm -hmm. 
you know, made me do well in the course were also some of the same things that helped me make it through SEAL training. Right. You know, the ability to take in a lot of information, a lot of detail very, very quickly, uh, analyze it, figure out what, what the intentions are, what the track forward track is of, of those intentions, and then start making decisions. So those are all tactical skills for a SEAL. Every SEAL has got to be good at those things. But then the mm -hmm. leadership part kicks in, as I said, after about two and a half to three years. Uh, officers do a little bit more leading in the very beginning, but they're still kind of running side by side with the enlisted guys learning the basic skills. Mm -hmm. So I, I eventually picked up uh, assigned leadership tasks. Then by rank, I started picking up more and more leadership responsibility. Leadership training was a part of that. A lot of the training was some, similar to what they did in the selection process in BUDS in that it's scenario driven. So they just keep putting you, reloading you. You know, it's a, it's a simulation kind of a thing, but it's a, a live ground tactile simulation. It's not a, a, a virtual environment. And they put you out there and they throw things at you and you fail as a leader. And then you regroup, they, they brief you, they point things out, they show your strengths, they show your weaknesses. Then they put you back out and they, they throw something else at you completely different. And they do it over and over and over until the day you retire. That's kind of the nature of SEAL training as a team and as a leader. You're in a constant state of contingency thinking, contingency planning, acting, reacting, making decisions, and, and eventually making plans that are further and further out into the future, depending on how senior you get in the organization. All yeah. that stuff conveys to the commercial leadership role. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking about what that would take mentally uh, to go through that over and over again. But at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking that it probably builds a certain resilience in in being able to be in that framework where you're expected to fail. You're expected that, hey, we're going to put you in the situation and you're probably going to do it wrong. Um, and then you're, you're going to get to go at it again, rather than it be in a live fire situation and have to uh, figure it out for the first time. That's exactly right. And I don't think it, you have to be a SEAL or a special operations uh, professional to do that. I, uh, yeah. Companies don't spend time training that way. They've hardly spent any time training, period. But yeah. the the sum, if the sum total of all your mistakes is what creates wisdom, and if wisdom is what informs judgment, the way to get to wisdom and judgment quicker is to have somebody run through and make lots of mistakes that don't count, you know, that don't really cause any real problems as soon as you can, as long as you can, as continuous as you can. So they become stronger and stronger and stronger and wiser and have a better sense of judgment. Then when the real stuff comes along, obviously in the military, it can be life and death. In the commercial world, it's profitability and other things. Mm. They've already got this built up that, you know, they've had all those failures and that resiliency is also that and the judgment uh, and the wisdom all kind of creates a confident leader, a mm -hmm. leader that's willing to think, look at the information, listen to everybody's input, make a decision, make that call, support that call, resource that call, push forward until something changes in the data flow that says you need to adjust. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious now. You've got me really curious here with with all of this training and being able to handle failure on an ongoing basis, then taking it into the boardroom, you know, from bullets, from the battlefield to the boardroom, um, you, you know, you're just changing, I guess, battlefields. But I, what I'm curious about is what about the other areas of your life? And 
and are you able to apply it there or are there uh, still areas that that like a regular human being that that we are confused and don't know how to deal with, uh, you know, areas of weakness or pain. Do you still have those or have those skills that you've been taught been able to transcend into all areas of your life? So I, you know, I, when I retired, I became a financial advisor and then a portfolio manager. So for about seven and a half years, all in, in that career, I mm -hmm. really didn't need, I mean, I didn't really have a good idea of how money worked. I understood okay. the idea of investing stocks, but I didn't understand the emotional component to wealth or the emotional component to losing wealth and how each individual was so uniquely different in the way they, they looked at money and looked at wealth because I'd never been around people with a lot of money in the military. And that's not what we were focused on anyway. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge education for me. And that was an education from scratch. I mean, I was, always dumbfounded after every you know potential client meeting or actual client review meeting with what I learned about human nature, what they thought about their other family members, whether they wanted to do estate planning and take care of one kid, not the other kid, you know, all those kinds of things would all come into play, you know? And so it was almost like you had a reality show going on times hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people's lives every year for seven and a half years. And so I became smart and I became wise and gained judgment in matters of money, not because I personally suffered all those failures, because I listened to mm -hmm. so many stories of bankruptcy or success or you name it, you know? And so in that category, that's how I gained, I think a point in my, in my life where I, I feel comfortable with taking risks with money. I understand money and all that. The same thing with life uh, itself. So we had lots of guys that, that died in training mostly. And oh, wow. we had got, some guys die in combat in training, not in, not oh, in the yeah. field. Yeah, yeah. Far more, far more people died in training, you know, than died in combat for a lot of the years in between Vietnam and, and nine 11, because yeah. the training is very realistic and you're and most of it's live fire and you're coming in at night really fast on helicopters or you're jumping out of the sky in the dark and you're, you know, there's a lot of weird things that can happen and you do everything you can to, to keep it from happening, but sometimes it happens. So, yeah. Probably by the time I retired, I had lost about 13 or 14 friends. Oh, wow. And so then, you know, I go into the money management business, which does not have that kind of, <laughs> that kind of death, death toll. Um, <laughs> Terminal but, velocity. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. then I, I lost my oldest son when he was 22. It was right after oh, he returned wow. from Iraq. He was in the air force and he died in a car accident. And and I realized at that point that having dealt with so many of those experiences while I was in the SEAL teams, that I had kind of a personal philosophy. I had kind of a, a little bit of a resilience in that too, even because I, I just had a feeling that that what happened happened and there's there was nothing I could have done about it. And he had a happy life. He had a he had a great life. He was a really good guy. He did what he wanted to do. Uh, he volunteered to go to Iraq. He wasn't sent there. And, and I actually looked around, I realized I was, I was, I was handling it better than a lot of other people in my family. And I realized it was because I'd been through something kind of like it 14 other times where a lot of the other people in the family may have lost a, a grandparent, you know, at the end of their lives, you know, one or two people. Uh, I had so many repetitions of going through this that, um, 
I had a, I had a little bit of a, of a leg up in trying to handle it and deal with it. So mm. it's back to that same thing. You know, you want to get good at something and, and become wise and be able to uh, express sound judgment in a particular category. You have to go out there as an apprentice and you have to practice and fail and practice and fail until you've built up enough confidence and, and knowledge that you're going to fail once in a while that puts it all in perspective. And then when something really happens, you're in a much better place than somebody who's never tried to do that. Wow. I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine trying to cope with the loss of a child. Um, and, and even having, even if I had certain skills, um, skills, experience, you know, uh, of having gone through it, I still can't imagine what, that would take to be able to do that. Um, can you perhaps say something about what that takes to be able to, to get through um, something difficult like that? Like losing a child? I think everybody's, everybody's got a different point of view. And obviously yeah. but from what I just said, I had a different starting point than all my, yeah. my family members. Yeah, I, I, th I think you have to go through whatever the grieving process is going to be for you. And everybody's different. Some people stay in shock a long time before they start to really accept it. And then eventually they, they try to understand it, but they may spend the rest of their life and not really understand why it happened. Yeah, uh, I, I've every single day in, in my workout room behind me where I, I got a Peloton bike and much other stuff. There's a big blow up picture of my son from his memorial when he was. Uh, at uh, Dover Downs, his, his graduating gift from me was 14 laps in a NASCAR. And he loved cars, fast cars. <laughs> and so he, was, he was getting ready to go in the Air Force. Wow. And so it's, he is like the happiest he, in his entire life. His huge smile. He's got his arm sticking out of the NASCAR, you know. And uh, he just finished the 14th lap. And every day I go in there and I say good morning to him. I mean, he's, he's going to be there for the rest of my life. I don't see it as, yeah. as anything other than it's a different way for me to try to have a relationship with them. And, and not everybody does it that way. I know at least yeah. one or two friends yeah. of mine, seals that have lost their kids. They were adult kids too. kind of do it the same way. You know, they're, it's not just keeping them in your heart. It's like, they're a part of you still. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, you, you miss the things that, that you think they would be doing at this time in life. I think he'd be 37 to 38 years old. Now he was 22 when he passed. And all my other kids, I got five kids. So all my other kids have all got kids. I got grand, five grandkids. What would he have been like as a, as a husband, as a father? What would he have been like, you know? Yeah. So you think about that stuff. But I think you get to a point where you think about that stuff in a more casual, philosophical way than a depressed, you know, you just break down because, you know, it's, it's so terrible. Because if you do it right, the grieving in the beginning gets a lot of that anger, frustration, you know, finger pointing at the universe, all that stuff. It kind of goes away if you, if you let it happen early. The people that don't carry that for a long time mm -hmm. and don't really face it and don't really get it off their, kind of get it off their psyche. So that, I mean, my, my recommendation is give into your emotions, let it all, let it rip in the beginning. And at some point you're, you're going to come to a point where you feel it is what it is, and I've got to cope with it and deal with it. And obviously, if you've got other people in your family, if you're a parent, you've lost a child, and you've got other kids, they all need your attention. They need 
they don't need whatever you have you have to give them on a given day because you're you know feeling sorry for yourself. So if you've got other responsibilities, you got to step up to those too. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, I uh, I lost my aunt and uncle. Uh, a f- gosh, about seven years ago now, but, and they, they would be, I would say are the closest family members that I've lost. And I keep a picture of them on my, uh, on my windowsill of my office here. And uh, I've had people say, you know, that I don't think that that's a good thing to do or a healthy thing to do. And I think I'm a lot more in, in your corner in the sense of, um, I, I prefer I prefer to have it there um, and be present to whatever emotions are there and um, rather than trying to tuck it away. And, um, you know, I, I also have thought many times that there really is power in, in having kids in that way. And who knows, I might get some flack for this, but I, I think that in having kids, what you just said is absolutely true. You still have to bring a hundred percent to them. Right. Yeah, you, they you deserve it. You can't bring them the leftover. Yeah. You can't yeah. bring them some sort of leftover. You, you got to give them what you got because um, they are, it, it's still 100%. They're still, you know, you still love them and you don't want to give anything uh, else. And I've seen people that have kids um, and have lost someone close and how that pulls you forward into that. And I've seen people without kids. And, um, and, and all there is, is loss, right? There, there isn't that way forward. And, uh, I don't know if there's something larger there, but it, it sure seems to me like there is something that pulls you out of, out of that place of depression that, that you might find yourself if you didn't have the future, i.e. your kids to look at. And there's, you know, we celebrate his birthday. We don't, we don't really mark the day of his, of his passing, yeah. Uh, I, we actually, we've done it the same way every year. We, uh, we get a little cake or a little cupcake. We put a, a candle in it. We, he was visiting us on Thanksgiving and then driving back to Utah his base. And he died out in near Kansas city in, a, in an ice storm. So he left a bottle of this really crappy flavored vodka. I mean, it is like the cheapest cut. <laughs> And there was about this much left in the bottle, you know, so we have that bottle still and we put that out and we put the bottle. My, I put some tequila, my wife put some, some uh, bourbon out or Irish whiskey and we have three shot glasses and then we take a, uh, a birthday card and we each write a message in there and then we put the birthday card behind the, the uh, shot glasses, fill them up and we then take a picture of it. And then we take the shots in the birthday card outside and to a fire pit or something. And we set the birthday card on fire. So, so it'll, the smoke will rise up to Valhalla and we, we both do a little, a little uh, salute to them and we do the shot. And we've done that for almost so 16 years now, something like that. So, wow. yeah. And then, you know, we send the pictures to my kids and for a couple of years, my kids um, knew we did it, but they weren't really sure why we were doing it. Yeah, you know, they grow up my grown kids, and all of a sudden, like the third year, we start getting pictures back of them duplicating the same thing wherever they lived. And so every year, wherever all, all the wow. kids live, there's the same ceremony, you know. Right. So yeah, you can do things like that. It's a ritual, 
but it's a positive ritual. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's an uplifting and, and uh, I guess a, a ritual that's aligned with his personality. Cause he was a very, he was like Jim Carrey as far as a, you know, cause he's very <laughs> six, six foot five loud, big, you know, comes into a room and does a false fall and tries to make everybody laugh kind of guy. So he would have yeah. loved the idea that what we're doing is what we're doing. He would have hated yeah. it if, if, if we were celebrating or, or marking his passing as the, as the event, you know? Yeah. So. That's beautiful. I, that really is beautiful. And uh, you know, I, what I love about what you're sharing here, not only I, first of all, I appreciate you sharing this um, powerful, you know, powerful experience and wisdom for, for people that, uh, are going through uh, challenging times and um, and you sometimes you just can't if you've not been through something you can't relate and sometimes it's hard for people that are going through that to hear anything you say unless they know that you've gone through some uh, right. you know through the the mud with them and um, and so what you're sharing I know is powerful for for people so first of all thank you for for sharing that and and I also love uh, what you're creating there because as we get older, I think um, there is something to being able to connect with with the memories without having, okay, this is probably a terrible example, but I'm talking with my mom who's uh, closing in on 80 and uh, she's losing her childhood home uh, they're, they're talking about selling it. And, and I was talking to her about how mom, you still have the memories that the house is being sold, but you still have, you still get to keep the memories and, uh, you're, you're not actually losing it. It's not like you live in this house. You get to still keep the memories. And what I'm hearing from you is how you are paying homage and honoring those beautiful memories of your son. And your son's name is his name's Michael. Michael. Okay. And how yeah. you're sure, you know, uh, really honoring those memories with Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the way it's I, it's the way I do it and it works for me. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. And um, sure. now I'm okay. So now I'm curious from that, does that give you a different perspective across the board for um, for stress and hard times. Sure. Uh, anybody that, first off, anybody that has been in uniform has probably been exposed just from training to more stress than the average person. Yeah. Uh, and, and that uniform could be a police uniform or, or a firefighter's uniform. It's, it, it's, uh, the training is all about going into a stressful situation handling the stressful situation and actually defeating the, the stressful situation, right? You got a, a job to do in the situation. It's not to run away from the fire. It's to go into the fire. Uh, same thing with the military. So when you start to get into more and more advanced units, that are predominantly designed to be that pointy end of the spear that goes in first or goes in frequently, like fighter pilots, bomber pilots, uh, any special ops, uh, you know, force recon Marines, Green Berets, et cetera. You're talking about people that are actually selected for their ability to handle extreme stress through that process I told you about before to see it and, and not be defeated by it before they even start to try to solve a problem in that high stress environment. 
anticipate it, deal with it, train to it, and then be able to decide, work, lead, and judge their way through it when they're actually in the moment. So the more you've done that in training, and the more you've done it, obviously you do a lot more in special ops training, and then you go into combat, The a lot of guys will tell you a lot of the combat seems a lot easier than a lot of the training because combat tends to be very boring, long, long periods of, of inactivity, a lot of uh, targets and a lot of assignments, a lot of missions that get canceled. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're in it because one didn't get canceled and it really did happen. And then maybe you're in it and everything went exactly the way you thought it was going to go. And the adversary wasn't that good. And it was done. It was like a, a two punches in the first round of a fight. And you're standing there going, oh, I, I won. And then, then you go back to the boredom. But we're in training, you're recycling and you're setting up every single day, every week. So you're actually prepared for a higher level of stress in some ways, whether you're an individual operator, whether you're a leader. And there's a, there's nothing really that can prepare you for losing somebody in combat, especially if you're a leader, because you have that same parental kind of feeling that you're responsible. Even if you didn't do anything to would have caused it directly, you feel like you brought them there. You need to bring them all back. As a peer, everybody wants to bring the people to the left and the right of them back intact, you know, not even hurt, not a scratch, which is a difficult task, you know, in war. So if somebody gets hurt, if somebody gets killed, everybody has to figure out a way to compartmentalize that so they can continue the job because you don't just, the team doesn't get uh, the day after go, okay, well, we're going home now because they have to keep doing it. It's kind of like what I was saying before, but they, each of the people in the team deserve everybody else's 100% effort the next day. So they have to figure out a way to deal with it, compartmentalize it, which they all do. And, and then they eventually, you know, continue on. And at some point they come back from that experience to a, a normal environment like the United States. And they may be up for a rotation pretty quick too, to go right back into it. That's when they have to decide whether they're going to let it out. But the more you hold that in, you know, multiple tours, especially in the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you've been holding all that in, you're going to have to pay that debt at some point mm -hmm. because all you're doing is you're not, you're not dealing with it. You're just putting it in a place so you can do your job. So every, again, every, every single military veteran of, of combat deals with that in a different way. And the military has done a really good job in the last say five or six years, trying to deal with that phenomenon in real time, you know, mm -hmm. having them do stress releasing, um, I guess therapy is a, a, a way to say it, but before they come back from the war zone, sometimes coming back in the States and taking a week in kind of a retreat area with therapists and people and other veterans that have gone through it saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go home. You start to decompress. This stuff's going to bubble up. You're going to have a hard time sleeping. You know, so they're all aware of it. So it's not a mystery. And they also don't think they're the only, the only person that's, that's having that problem. So all of those experiences make you stronger in dealing with stress. It doesn't necessarily make the stress go away and not have a, a consequence at some point. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I, I, I don't want to get too abstract in this, but I think th there is something really powerful here in, in what you're, you're talking about just, Oh my goodness. There's so many different levels. Um, there's always a conversation that is had by the older versus the younger about, you know, oh, kids nowadays, they're not tough enough, right? Or they can't handle things 
but if you actually study some of these, uh, the psychology of people and their, uh, their resiliency, one of the things that you realize is people that have been through war and challenging times tend to be more resilient than people that have not gone through these things, just, just out of uh, sheer gratitude for <laughs> safety and these things. Right. Um, and, um, and so it's interesting because the, uh, the counter side of it is that people that have gone through these times also have to deal with uh, stress at the, the trauma of these times. And so being able to balance that uh, with, with that learning that you're talking about, you know, hey, having a retreat, having these times with other people, which was not something, you know, you talk to uh, not as many around anymore, but you talk to World War II wet vets who don't really want to talk about any of those times to now we understand a whole lot more about the need to be able to uh, talk about these things. And, and uh, I think that's what you're sharing. Now, how do you how do you translate that to, you know, for me, translating that to my kids to help them to be resilient? They don't have this theater of war to to juxtapose their life. And so the things that they call stressful and the things that they get depressed over, I'm yeah. like, are you kidding me? Do you know what people that have gone before us have have dealt with? Um, is Is there a way that you know, being through what you've been through and learning what you've learned, is there a way that you can see that uh, we can help uh, build resilient kids? Like, like a lot of change, the first thing you have to do is, is recognize that there's an issue or problem. If you don't believe there's a problem, then it's hard to do everything you're going to have to do and be committed to it to change the paradigm. In, in the case you're talking about kids to change their paradigm yeah. and, and so here's an example. There's a saying, I mean, screw this up, but it's uh, tough times create tough people. Tough people create soft people. Soft people create tough times. Now, the, the thought of that is, is that nobody wants their kids to have a, a life that's tough or hard or difficult. That's part of the parental, you know, kind of basic roles and responsibilities, right? So if you go by that, you eventually, generation by generation, start taking care of kids, protecting kids, comforting kids, sheltering kids, keeping them away from risk, keeping them away from consequences to a greater and greater extent until the point where those kids grow up and they aren't resilient because they've never been exposed to the things that the world can throw at them. Uh, for example, a, a Katrina, which you wouldn't expect, but if a Katrina happens and you've got essentially like a zombie apocalypse within two weeks, people are robbing and stealing and raping and, and doing whatever they want to do. Yeah. Uh, Literally. Yeah. You know, one, one generation might pick up, you know, sticks, sharpen them, form a team and protect the neighborhood and defend and rescue people. Another generation might wait and see if somebody catches them. If they do, they'll run. Another generation would get in the fetal position and hide because they don't know that they have a responsibility to stand up to it because that's not the way they were raised, but they don't know they have a responsibility to try to get out of there because they feel like they have no hope. They have, they should just sit, sit where they are and just have somebody come and get them or something. So it's not really generational purely. It's, it's parent by parent, family by family, kid by kid, 
I don't believe in the generalities that any particular like Zen, you know, X or Z or Y or any millennials versus baby boomers. I, I know baby boomers that would crawl and get in the fetal position. <laughs> it, it's not about that. My, my, my parents were depression era people. Yeah. I, I grew up with kids that were pretty much told by their dads, get out there, work until I tell you not to work. And then you can play for about this much time. You can't watch TV except on Sunday nights. Those were restrictions that we all thought were unfair at the time. But it also made us as adults not feel like if we didn't have a TV, life had collapsed, <laughs> you know, because we, we learned that we could live with it. I mean, live without it. And we learned we could live within restrictions. The military experience, I told you, like resilience, even for people, anybody in uniform, military or or civil civil uh, organizations that do things like firefighting and policing. You sleep in a tent and get eaten alive by mosquitoes for two nights. You've just gone through a learning experience. So you don't have to go into combat. You don't have to be run into a burning building. You don't have to go to that kind of an extreme mm. to, to learn a little bit about the lesson. So I think most kids, and there's a point where you might lose them if they get too old, but I think most kids don't understand why they would have to do that. What's the value? What's, you know, what, what's the out, what's the end game to this? And you can either lecture them to death and hope they get it, or you can take them out and not tell them anything and just force them to live through it, but they don't know why. I think a combination of both is probably appropriate. And you start with small stuff. Most kids want to bond and 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 hang with their either their their siblings or their parents in a positive way. So eventually the hike, which might have been 20 minutes a year ago and now it's an hour, and next year you're gonna do a section of the Appalachian Trail. It becomes more about hanging with dad or mom or hanging with the older brother than it does about what you think it's all about. But that's okay because you're still getting you're still getting what you want out of it, which is that they're out of the house. They're experiencing an environment that they don't control. They're away from the electronics. And, and there's plenty of opportunities when you're doing that to talk about the reality of the world, the reality of, of the planet. There's predators and prey. Uh, what happened? What would you do right now if you, you stumbled and broke your ankle right here in the middle of nowhere? You know, and then have them go through the thoughts. If they haven't a clue, if they were just crawl, you know, crawl up in a ball and start crying and hope that somebody heard them crying, well then, okay, so what do you do from that? You, you explain to them how nobody's going to find you. So this is what you could do. You could crawl up to that tree there and break a branch off and you could create a splint by tearing off one of the sleeves of your long sleeve shirt and wrap it around your leg. And then you could get up to the, get up to the path that's above us and move, move to the high ground. Cause guess what? The road runs along this ridge, which is the high ground to our left. You start giving them other patterns of behavior. Yeah. Yeah, right? I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so you do that. You do that. You know, 10, 12 times in the course of a kid growing from say, you know, seven years old to getting out of getting out of high school, they would have learned a hell of a lot of good lessons. Mm. You know, and and maybe had some fun doing it too. Well, well, I I wrote down. Uh, I made I made a little note over here about um, you know hiking and going to call it a little bit of extreme hiking or something like that. We're not just walking around the neighborhood. Um, Cause I thought that that actually would be a lot of fun. Now my kids are all teens at this point. Um, and I was a bit of that, that weird and crazy parent. Um, you know, we were moving at one point and rather than, um, or when my kids were young, I 
even though we had the bedrooms, I still made them share rooms and um, they didn't understand, but they didn't really question it a whole lot. They were young. And then when we were moving, uh, we bought um, we bought a smaller house um, on purpose because I something made me realize that they need to have they need to have a different perspective. If they think this is how everybody lives in this gigantic house that we were fortunate enough to get the first house, um, I thought let me give them a little bit of perspective uh, difference. And so we bought a smaller house and. You know, I know that was a little weird, but we we did it. And now when we've gotten this house, they they're still like, hey, dad, do you remember that house? Man, we were we were had to share with each other and and these kind of things. And they're able to appreciate some of these changes. And as for as for the scenarios, um, I think the biggest one that we we like to talk about is uh, what happens if there's a zombie apocalypse? What do you do? <laughs> what are you going to do now? Oh, yeah. I, I actually talked to adults about that. You know, they, they, somebody says, Hey, should I buy a gun? Should I buy gold? And I, mm -hmm. I go, so what, what scenario you, are you thinking about that's driving right. that question? Right. And so they start describing the question. I said, Oh, well, you know, I, if you don't, if you don't buy a gun and you buy gold, somebody with a gun is just going to take your gold. So I wouldn't buy gold <laughs> <laughs> because in the situation you're talking about, there's going to be packs right. of people roaming the neighborhood and every house that has food and gold is going to be a supply depot. It's going to be like a little right. mini Walmart. And they're right. like, what? Well, yeah, that, that's the way it's going to work. But, you know, experiential learning, which is kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. It's, uh, it sticks, especially in younger kids. It sticks. It's different than trying to memorize something. It's, they remember events and, and they, they kind of stick in their brain and make an imprint that's longer lasting and deeper than words do. So it's almost impossible to do from a kitchen table as a parent to try to explain any of that. An example would be, um, I'll kind of murder something that my dad used to have me do. So let's say a parent says, okay, I want you to, uh, I want you to sharpen the blades on the lawnmower. So you tilt it over and here's a file and I want you to sharpen the blades and I'll give you five bucks. So you just tell me when you're done. So they come back and say, I want my five bucks. Well, let's go look. And they've sharpened only one side of each blade. The other side of each blade is dull. And he said, yeah. well, you, have, you haven't completed the job. And you explain why. And you show them. And you say, you complete the job. Then you get paid for the job. Then you walk away. Then they come back and they say, I want my five bucks. You go back and they've done one of the remaining blades, but there's still one blade, the side of one blade that hasn't been sharpened. You explain it again. You walk away. So there's consequences for doing a half-assed job. There was a task that was laid out. It's not complex or difficult to do right it doesn't take a lot of time but how long is it taking now to redo 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 and then when they finally do it right and you inspect it you reach in your pocket and you hand them five bucks a week later you do do the same thing with a totally different task you don't explain what you're trying to do you don't explain the goal of what you're trying to do you just let them go through the experience of not getting paid unless they do the job correctly if you do that again you know 10 12 times a year for a couple of years, you're putting a work ethic, you know, it's almost like you're genetically coding their work ethic. And now they still may run into other people that say, I don't care if you do a half-assed job and here's the money anyway. But somewhere in the back of their mind, there's, they're saying, that's not really right. And that's not what I would want if I was paying somebody $5. Mm -hmm. Right? Wow. Experiential, simple, direct, with way, you know, not that much lecturing involved, especially with kids.
Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking, I wish I'd been taught that lesson because I didn't really learn that lesson until I was in my 20s. And, um, you know, it was always uh, get get the stuff done. And and so oftentimes you're rewarded more for getting it done than doing a good job in yeah. in doing it. And um, and then in my 20s, after having worked in electrical, some construction, some of these things, you realize I'm getting tired of doing jobs over again or having to go back and fix things. Maybe I should just stop with the shortcuts, which I thought was a superpower when I was young. Man, being able to speed up and get things done quickly, you realize, man, that's actually the long way around because you have to keep going back and forth. So I, I love that lesson. Um, and uh, I wish I had learned that earlier. It would have been a, yeah, a great there's way a, to, to There's teach. a tactical, tactical saying in the SEAL teams that relates to doing almost anything tactical, including shooting. And the, the phrase is slow is fast. Yes. Yes. So the other thing is incremental, you know, baby steps. Learn incrementally in the smallest little bite-sized increments you can. Make sure each increment is understood and you can execute as perfectly as possible before you go to the next one. And you string them all along and then you'll actually have an expertise at the end of it instead of kind of a, a jumbled understanding of what it is you were, you were supposed to be able to do. So. Yeah. You know that there's a lot of little things, little lessons like that. Some of those are some of those are in some of my books, but um, that story about about the work ethic thing that was a real thing for me. My dad just didn't give me five dollars to do it. He said, "You're a member of the family. That's why you're going to do it." But that's how it was. Depression era guys, you know, they give you what? I'm not going to give you money to do something around here. You're helping with the family. But that's kind of I took it and I with my kids and I ended up because I'm the weaker generation. I gave my kids an incentive, a financial incentive. <laughs> <laughs> i had to buy um, my i had to buy my own car my kids had to go to work and do i did like a one to three dollar ratio or something but you know by that time you couldn't buy a junk car like when i was a kid you know the car had to have an airbag which you know there's no way a kid could have afforded that. he'd been 28 years old by the time working at burger king paid that thing off <laughs> <laughs> um, absolutely it's it's interesting. I'm actually uh, right now we're talking about getting a car for uh, for my daughters who are getting their license. I have a feeling that my son, who is younger than both of them, might get his license before them. But yeah. uh, I think they enjoy being sofered around. Um, but it's it's funny what you're saying with regards to uh, giving them some money. The uh, the East Indian culture in me kicked up right away and thought, um I'm not paying them for doing <laughs> for doing something that no one's going to pay you to do that when you yeah. get older. Yeah, you my, compro that. my compromise was there were chores <laughs> that had no remuneration associated with them. And then there mm. were special tasks that I made a point to make the point. So um, and they all they all ended up working as teenagers. They all worked all the way through college and, yeah. you know, they're all working and, and they have professions now. So. And, and work ethic has never been a problem for all five of them. So that's, that's a good thing. Brilliant. I don't know what they're teaching their kids. I think the oldest is five years old of all the grandkids right now, but uh, I'm going to have to remind them that that's kind of, that was the method behind my madness because they probably, because I didn't tell them at the time. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. You can just tell them, you know, I was uh, on a podcast today and I, I remember, do you guys remember this when I used to do this? 
<laughs> and make you guys do this. That's that's great. Uh, great life lessons. And, you know, for a parent, I know, especially new parents, there's huge benefit in being able to hear what one of the greatest lessons, uh, one of the greatest blessings I've ever had is having friends that were, you know, uh, slightly older than me. So their kids were in a whole different age range when mine were, you know, behind coming up. Yeah. So being it's able to great. ask them questions and, oh, oh, yeah, it, I did this wrong. I did that. <laughs> and you're like, it, oh, it's absolutely great. I had, I had a friend of mine who was a Vietnam era army colonel when he retired and he had five sons. I, I used to call them the Cartwrights because it was like they're all all of them were like six foot to six foot four. Right. And uh, in my mind, I thought, well, that must have been kind of fun because I had younger kids. I think yeah. my oldest, Michael, was probably about 13 years old at the time. And uh, one day, just out of the blue, he looks at me, not Michael, but this older guy. And he said, you want a piece of advice? I said, sure. He goes, never hit your sons. Never hit them. And I go, why well, don't hit them? You'll want to. <laughs> because they're going to want to hit you. And when that moment happens, you need to remember, you can't take it back if you do it. Right. And I thought, okay. Two years later, my oldest son, you know, his voice has changed and all that stuff. And, and I guess he, he was getting in his mom's face about something and giving her a hard time and said a couple of things and dropped a couple of, dropped a couple of words. And I came around the corner and he challenged me physically. And I, I tell you what, that, that comment from two years earlier flashed into my head. I said, this is the moment he went through it five times. <laughs> he had five boys and they all, you know, they were grown men at the time. He knew that this moment was coming and he just gave me that advice because he didn't know when it was going to happen. And, uh, and so I was able to handle it completely differently because I had that, that sage, you know, yeah. advice from that, from that gentleman. So, uh, yeah, because it went the, the first time an older boy gets in your face and, and wants to physically push back because a lot of times they'll, they'll want to do that. You have a couple of different ways you can react, you know, but, um, yeah. And, you know, so whenever I tell people something, I'll say, yeah, well, all your kids are going to love you till you're, till they're 12 years old. Want to go everywhere you're going. Want to jump in the car just for a stupid ride to the, to Walmart from, from 12 to 22, they're going to hate your guts. And from 23 on, they're going to start asking for advice. And by, by the time they're 30, they're going to be, um, your best friend. They're going to, wow. yeah. So you're going to be drinking with them and hanging and, and listening to them like they're your best friend. So, uh, you just have to get through that that 12 to 22 thing without destroying what relationship you mm -hmm. have and understand that you're going to have something at the other end of all that because they're going through yeah. all those changes and you aren't. And uh, I found that to be true. Yeah, that that's really interesting because I, um, you know, when I was younger in in that age, I was uh, I got into gang life and I was causing all sorts of trouble. And, um, by and large, I look at my kids and they're, they're fantastic, um, in comparison to who I was at, at that age. And, um, now it's interesting cause I've, I can see as my boys, especially are, you know, the voices changing the hair, all this kind of stuff. And we're having great fun with it. And 
um, I'm really developing a great relationship with them in these teen years. And I've told them there's there's only one line they don't get to cross. And I said, you do not get to disrespect my wife, uh, your mother. I was like, listen, you can you can disrespect me, whatever happens, all this kind of stuff. I said, but that woman, she fights for you. She gives her life for you. I said, I will hurt you <laughs> if you hurt her. So, um, so interestingly, I've to the to this day, anytime they've had some altercations, any of anything along those lines, I'm like, you better remember what I said to you. But the, and they're like, okay, okay, and they they back off on that. And so we haven't had to get into anything sure. physically. Um, but it, but there is something I think amongst men and boys, and you know, having gone through that, where you you sort of understand a little bit of what what's happening there. You understand, oh, okay, this is testosterone. You don't even it, it doesn't even phase you. My wife is freaking out, and I'm like, hun, hun, it's just testosterone. Leave him alone. <laughs> He's fine. He's going to come yeah. down in a few minutes or or a few years. I'm not sure, but. Um, yeah there is something there they're all pop bottle rockets for a couple of years (laughs) they sit there real quietly and all of a sudden they go and then they're then they're spent and then they recharge (laughs) (laughs) okay marty i thank you so much for all of this i but i've got to ask you about uh i got to ask you about the book um i realize we're we're uh uh, our time is coming close. You got to tell me about Be Nimble. Get, give us a little bit about the book and uh, uh, the the wisdom and teaching that you share in there. Sure. So uh, Be Nimble is a book that I actually wrote because I was going to put together a consulting and speaking practice eventually. I'm a CEO right now. I have I have a lot of responsibilities, but I thought over time I'm going to start building up this other, this other um, project and eventually segue to that. So I wanted to put and codify in the first book and be nimble all the things that I thought were important to convey to either aspiring leaders or existing leaders. I do a lot of mentoring and coaching, uh, covering a lot of different kinds of industries and a lot of different levels of leaders. And I had kind of a, a shtick. I had kind of a philosophy that had evolved and also had kind of a list of things that were common concerns, common uh issues, I guess, that these people would bring to me. And I thought, all right, so I've got kind of a need statement of leaders and aspiring leaders, and I've got my own philosophy and and what's worked and hasn't worked. So how do I put that together? And it really has more value in the context of a dynamic organization. So an organization is usually dynamic because it's something internal, like you have a strategy to pivot to something completely new or to take a whole lot of you know market share at a very rapid rate, or it can be externally. You have a competitor that's threatening you, or you have something like a pandemic that's changing the entire kind of context of your business and your industry. But in any case, in those situations, that's really where you bench test leadership. You bench test leadership, whether it's brand new leadership or whether it's leadership that's been in place for a long time because if you don't know what you're doing you're going to make mistakes and if you think you know what you're doing you're probably going to make mistakes when everything's changing when the sand is shifting under your feet so i went through codified my thoughts 
addressed the audience as aspiring or existing leaders in dynamic organizations where there's a lot of crisis or chaos, internal or external, addressed all that and be nimble, you know, how the creative ABCL mindset wins on the battlefield and business. And one of the, the chapters is on strategic design. And one of my beta readers, one of the CEOs I had reading chapter by chapter, I had like four, four of them doing that as I was writing to make sure I, I stuck with my, I did kind of a mentoring coaching conversational tone to the book rather than an academic academic tone. And he said, you know, that, that chapter, you could do a whole book on that. So the way things work in publishing, I finished being nimble 20 something months ago. And then it started going through different drafts and editing and all that. And then there was a 10 months of marketing uh, pre-release and then it was released in January of this year. But I had already started writing the strategic second book which is called Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. So that comes out at the end of this year. And that book addresses kind of what my strong suit is, I think, at this point in my, my life. The ability to take a look at the horizon, to see threats and opportunities on the horizon. And I'm talking about a 360-degree view of the horizon, not just in the one lane you happen to be in. And to appreciate the threats appreciate the opportunities and then to take the vision and try to turn it into a strategy. How do you directionally get to that point you want to get to either to avoid the threat by doing some strategic action or to seize the opportunity through some strategic action. And then the next step is how do you pitch and sell whoever's driving the resources, whoever the decision makers are by tying the vision to the strategy and taking the strategy and creating at least a conceptual operational plan to achieve the strategy. So that's what the second book's about. It's, it actually walks you through almost like a primer, tells you how to take the creative kind of open-minded people in an organization and create what I call the dream team. They help you flesh out the uh, vision from concept to an actual kind of plan. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other people, which are kind of the antagonists who it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, I'm only focused on next week's KPIs, that kind of thing. But they're but they're talented and they they know what they're doing in their lanes. And you let them be the rough stone that you sharpen the visionary concepts against. So you're using the strengths of and weaknesses from a visionary standpoint of both groups. You're not discounting right. one saying they, they don't think, you know, big, big picture dreams and all that. And you're definitely not kicking the big picture dream people, you know, out of the room saying we're only going to talk about next week. So it's, there's a lot of those practical ways to actually execute how to pitch it, you know, how to do, how to run a pitch session, how to prep for a pitch session, going in to mm -hmm. pitch for money or pitch for uh, approval and permission and additional resources. All those things that go into uh, converting a strat, conceiving a vision and converting it into a strategy. Wow. What would you say is the, the most important trait for a CEO? Humility, intellectual humility, and you know, in a, you have to have intellectual humility to have intellectual creativity. And you know, the curiosity, you know, you could say intellectual curiosity, but curiosity is really a child of humility. You aren't really curious if you think you know it all. So you have to be humble first. You have to forget everything you've learned about the subject at hand especially in a crisis, especially when there's new information coming in that doesn't make any sense. 
that's not lining up with anything. Because what most people do is they double down on what they know. And what you really should be doing is saying, I, whatever I know doesn't matter. I want to learn everything that's going on right now. So here's kind of a funny way of looking at it. Every day when I walk out of my house to go to work, my FJ Cruiser's sitting there in the driveway. And there's no threats or anything for me going from the door to the FJ Cruiser every single day. So what if somebody, my neighbor called me and said, there's a 25 foot long crocodile sitting on the path from your door to your FJ Cruiser. And I said, thank you, but I've never had a problem with crocodiles ever. In my experience, I've never had a problem with a crocodile. There's no threats just trying to get from my door to the FJ Cruiser. As a matter of fact, when I went to school, we had a class on things like this. And all my education says, there's no way I'm going to run into a crocodile in Virginia Beach between my house, my, my front door and the FJ Cruiser. And then I walk out there and I get my leg bit off. Because guess what? Not only did I not listen to anybody, not only did I double down on what I thought I'd, I'd learned somewhere in the past and thought that was relevant, I didn't even pay attention to where I was walking because I've never had a problem with that 20-second walk. Mm -hmm. Yet there was a problem there. I didn't see it. I didn't listen ahead of time. So all the warnings were ignored. You know, that's how black swans usually work. You know, the, the 9-11s and the Pearl Harbors and the things like that, the pandemic. Usually afterwards, they look back and there's all these warning signs and all this information and all this new data. And the people in charge and the people in power say, not what I'm used to, not what I believe, because whatever I believe based on the past is what's going to happen tomorrow. So thank you, but I'm not going to pay attention to your information. Mm -hmm. So that's a lack of humility. You need, you need to just clear all yeah. that. And, and it's the other part of it is the emotional positives and negatives of your past. If you're a superhero and you just got, you know, three bonuses in a row and you got promoted and, um, and all of a sudden there's, there's some new situation in front of you, you got to clear that out of your head too, because you, you're, you're rolling on this mindset that you don't do anything wrong. You're a, you're a genius. You know, you're a player. You're, you can always have good answers, the right answers. Look at, look at my track record. That's going to blind you. The, the other is the reverse of that. What happens if you got fired from your last job and you're in trouble in the, the new job and your wife told you this morning, she's threatening to leave you and you walk in there. So now you're in there and you're all depressed and, and you know, you got that mindset going on when you're supposed to be listening to the information. So just get rid of all that baggage, clear your mind, get as, as intellectually uh, humble as you possibly can. And those combinations will allow you to be uh, curious uh, and that curiosity will allow you to, to become creative. And that'll, that with any judgment that you have, you usually conspire to, to be a better leadership position or posture, especially in crisis. Wow. Wow. Marty, thank you so much from, from battlefield to boardrooms. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience. Um, you know, definitely getting into an area that um, I didn't I didn't know that we were going to go into. But I think when it comes to uh, life and leadership, uh, you know, you really shared some some powerful learning uh, with us uh, today. Happy to do so, Neil. All right. Take care. And uh Guys, this was the Leadership to Wealth podcast, and we'll see you again next time.